there's just like a very predictable punk rock response from these young men who have been using Pepe for years and feel very identified with him. They say like, oh, we're going to punkify or Nazify Pepe and make him so grotesque that pop culture won't be able to ever use it again. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, as America's brutal knife fight in a muddy trench of an election staggers to an agonizing finish, the country has some serious introspection to do. It could begin by considering the frog. No, not just any frog, but Pepe the frog, the smiley, vaguely francophile amphibian that has bizarrely been claimed as the cartoon mascot of the runaway far-right internet, promoted as a symbol of hate by Alex Jones, Richard Spencer, and others who prey on our social divisions. Pepe, however, wasn't always such a creep. In fact, he began life as a lovable, everyday slacker, known for doing what, quote, feels good, man, his catchphrase, and now the title of a new documentary by director Arthur Jones and producer Giorgio Angelini that charts how this creation of San Francisco artist Matt Fury evolved into a monster. To delve into the strange saga of Pepe the Frog, Artnet News' chief art critic Ben Davis spoke to the film's creators about the unpredictable lives that images lead on the internet today and what that tells us about the troubled soul of our nation. Hey, how you doing? Good. Do you two just want to introduce yourselves and your names and your relationship with the film real quick? Sure. My name's Arthur Jones. I directed Feels Good Man. I also did a lot of the cartoons and motion graphics in the film. And Giorgio and I have a production company called Ready Fictions. And my name is Giorgio Angelini. I'm the producer and writer, and I shot some of the film and did some of the music. We, we all were, wore a lot of hats. <laughs> yeah, we were in the trenches together making this film. So people probably know Pepe the Frog just generally from internet culture or maybe more specifically from the 2016 election and, and since the fallout from it, when it became really known as a symbol of the alt-right. And your film, Feels Good Man, is about the story behind the symbol. So why don't you tell me about the central figure of the film, this artist, Matt Fury. Yeah, the film is about Pepe the Frog and the man who created him. And it's a story that even if you've seen Pepe online, maybe you don't know how elaborate and deep the backstory goes. The film is named Feels Good Man because there is a panel of a comic book that Matt drew around 2008. It's a comic book called Boys Club. There's a character named Pepe the Frog, and he's one of four characters in the comic book. And Pepe says, feels good, man, in this panel. And he's responding to his roommate, who's just walked in on him. And Pepe has been peeing, standing at the toilet. He's pulled his pants all the way down around his ankles. So they're sitting on the floor. His roommate asks him why he does this. And Pepe responds, feels good, man. And this one panel from this one very pretty obscure zine took off on the internet through no control of Matt. So that's kind of the inciting incident of our film. It's also this kind of very unique case study in how things get warped and changed online. It's about Matt learning how to like deal with this predicament he's in. His character gets officially designated a hate symbol in 2016. So it's about him trying to maybe reclaim the narrative of Pepe and then also trying to like enact the copyright so that people can't use it as propaganda. And it's also this larger story about how trolling moved off of message board culture and Pepe became the signifier for trolling and then moved off of the message boards and into mainstream politics in 2016. 
Well, let's talk a little bit more specifically about how it became a political meme, because there's a big jump that goes from this kind of indie comics thing to even just the way it functioned on the web in the MySpace era to then what it becomes when 4chan gets a hold of it and then into the 2016 election. So maybe just trace the community it found online. I mean, we tell kind of a 10-year story of Pepe on the internet, and um, Pepe is a really flexible narrative device. And so we really decided to tell the emotional journey of Pepe. And Pepe went from this sort of feels-good man frog, which was largely an innocuous reaction image for people. As in an image people used to express a reaction to, to a comment someone had or an opinion someone had. Yeah. And this was an era where like actually posting images within text threads was not that common. It was before emojis. It was before the sort of flexible discourse of text messaging. It was a reaction image where people could post Pepe and people from the very beginning, I don't think necessarily knew anything about Matt's artwork. They just thought that this frog was immediately arresting. They thought there was something kind of cute and creepy about the frog. And the fact that he was saying feels good, man, but he seemed a little cracked out. I think people found to be just kind of appealing. And so in the film, we chart how Pepe sort of changes, how Pepe becomes this emoji, essentially. And so he goes from the feels good man frog to the feels sad man frog to the feels bad man frog. And then ultimately, Pepe becomes uh, more and more irrational and angry. And this is happening at the same time in 2015 and 2016, there's a real kind of break in America where there are a lot of people who are feeling more angry and they're taking this anger into the internet. And the Republican Party becomes basically a party where their sole kind of base is aggrievement. It's anger. It's saying that things are fucked up and we want someone who is able to like address this. And that's why Donald Trump became so popular is because he's a megaphone for anger. And so we trace how Pepe becomes like angry and emotional as the internet becomes angry and emotional at the same time. Isn't there a, a middle step there though, too? Because one of the things I think is interesting about what your film does, which is to drill back to this image that people have consumed out of context to like what the original context is, where it is this originally this non sequitur comedy series about college friends hanging out and kind of that spaced out after college moment when you don't really know what you're doing and you're kind of living in your own filth. That's a kind of a purgatory that a lot of people go through. And then there's this moment after the 2008 financial crisis when a lot of young people graduating into the labor force graduated in that kind of situation, but then it never ends. A dramatic yeah. spike in the number of millennials living with their yeah. parents in their basement and never graduating out of that. And so it's kind of like Pepe tracks that mutation of what's going on with the subject matter underneath it. And then I also think it's originally called Boys Club. And it's about four young men living together, kind of goofing around, palling around with your, your bros kind of way. The kind of culture that develops on Fortran is very much organized around this identity of being, you know, a man who's cut off from women voluntarily and involuntarily and identifies with being stuck in this kind of thwarted space of masculine brain. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of contending factors that are all confluenced to create this phenomenon. There's this one particular panel where Pepe transforms from the feels good man frog to the feels sad man frog. That's where the turn happens. That conspires with 
the financial meltdown of 2008, which conspires with this group of predominantly young men online who are all talking about how like the world is conspiring against them and that they have no agency in this world, whether that's legitimate or not. And they all start identifying with Pepe as their icon or their hero of sorts. And so then when the commoditization of social media comes in and Pepe has already been very well established as the mascot of the internet. He starts to get co-opted actually by what they pejoratively refer to as the normies, right? And so normies start using Pepe and there's just like a very predictable punk rock response from these young men who have been using Pepe for years and feel very identified with him. They say like, oh, we're going to punkify or Nazify Pepe and make him so grotesque that pop culture won't be able to ever use it again. And then that begets this next phase, the hypercharging of it, of the confluence of the election. And then these like opportunists who are professional provocateurs and professional racists who have long sought to identify young, aggrieved, alienated young white men and tell them how to fix their troubles, right? And then Pepe is this great way to identify those people. And then they just start to cynically go after these people and, and retarget their attention towards a shared goal of humiliating a common enemy of women, immigrants, whoever. You know, 4chan was really its own creative community. And before 4chan became synonymous with the alt-right, particularly the politics board on 4chan, 4chan was actually a place where Occupy Wall Street came out of 4chan to a certain sure. degree. Yeah. Anonymous. Yeah, yeah, and anonymous. And there was a previous generation on 4chan before this kind of more contemporary generation on 4chan. And there was this moment where I think 4chan did have this idealism where they were like, we, the people of the internet, are going to enact change out in the real world. And then when all of that sort of fell apart, when Anonymous really just kind of became co-opted by all of these different contending hacker groups, when Occupy Wall Street got sort of shut down, when the financial collapse happened, a lot of people left 4chan and then the people that stayed really just kind of gave up. You know, 4chan has always thought about itself as a creative space. You know, for years it was like they kind of considered themselves to be chaotically neutral. And then when social media comes in, they're like, wait, the internet has been ours. And we have all of these people who are not creative, who are just passive consumers, who just want to look good and make personal brands for themselves. They're coming in and like kind of stealing our thing. And that was like really an emotionally offensive thing for a lot of people on the platform. What I find so compelling about the movie is that it has this very specific story and this very specific individual at the heart of it. But then from there, just to me, it seems to cycle out into these larger and larger rings that make you think about really what has happened to culture yeah. in the last 10 years and how there's a kind of a new cultural texture or cultural sensibility developed online. And, and Matt seems to me to represent something earlier, you know, he's someone with one foot in both worlds. What happens to him online sort of happens behind his back, right? Yeah. I mean, in some sense, Matt is an incredible protagonist because I think he probably, I would hope, I think a lot of people maybe identify with his struggle in some way or another. Maybe you're not specifically a cartoonist who had your artwork co-opted by evil forces, but maybe you feel like the world around you has changed really dramatically and that your consensus reality has been taken from you. He's a really compelling figure because he is such an innocent in some way. The first iteration of Pepe really is this innocent comic book about just guys farting around in an apartment together or, you know, they're animals, but they're stand-ins for the kind of 
sense of post-college malaise and so on. You know, obviously he's a little older now and has his own life, but he does still seem like kind of an innocent. He's definitely, I would say, the hero of your movie. He's more than a protagonist. I think the movie is on his side. There are moments in the movie where you're like, really, you don't get what's happening, man, you know? <laughs> you know, we, we saw that in the same way that Pepe was kind of kidnapped from Matt, there's a lot of us that feel as though consensus reality has been kidnapped from us all because of social media and the misinformation and the antagonism that happens on it. It's also this kind of interesting story. Matt is sort of indicative of how subculture worked in the 90s, kind of for late Gen X. You know, subculture was defined because of the community that you were part of. So Matt is very much a product of this very specific community in the San Francisco mission. And there was a lot of stuff going on there that he was part of. He was an illustrator within those larger music scene, a very DIY scene the community thrift store where you see him in the beginning working, all of the people at the community thrift store were artists and they could all make their living working at the community thrift store. And then we sort of see how subculture for the next generation is completely defined by these sort of like online communities that are not really based in like person to person contact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a different scene and that's the way subculture works now. Yeah, there's a famous movie about San Francisco, book and movie about San Francisco, street art culture, beautiful losers. The Barry McGee kind of scene that is the same kind of cartoon-based, whimsical, colorful ideas that was in dialogue with a kind of indie comic scene around Matt Fury. And then it's interesting to take that line, kind of late Gen X, beautiful losers idea, and see how that morphs into the Pepe meme. And then the beautiful part starts changing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Embracing the loser part. It's something I hadn't really thought about until we had a Q&A recently with Tim Heidecker from the comedian Tim and Eric. And he was talking about how early Tim and Eric sketches that kind of come out of the same period of Gen X malaise and like ad busters kind of cynicism about mass consumerism, how some of their early sketches are now getting not necessarily reappropriated, but how like the message is connecting with younger audiences, but then like the output is different. And there's like this translational error in some way where people interpret the satire in very different ways, if that makes sense. And I think that's like kind of how Pepe's transformation happened, right? Because as dumb and silly as Boys Club is, there is a kind of very deliberate critique of consumerism embedded in these really silly animations that I think get reinterpreted and recontextualized with this new internet era. You have this incredible or horrifying, depending on how you look at it, interview with the Trump web strategist who helped tap into Pepe. And it's, we're talking about the street art comic book roots of this. And it's interesting to think about it for me as comparing it to the Obama Hope poster, Shepard Ferry mm. poster from 2008, where that came out of street art the fact that it came from this new aesthetic place symbolized the kind of new community energy being tapped into a new audience subculture yeah. that was already coalescing, that its newness could symbolize what Obama symbolized to a lot of people. And really the way your film frames it really is like the Pepe becomes a reverse version of that. That very consciously this guy discovers this image or manipulates this image and it taps into this other kind of creative community and this other kind of cultural energy that's going on that he very consciously talks to you guys about. Yeah, he's like very attuned to how art and politics and propaganda all conspire on either side of the political aisle. But that, I think, is what's kind of at the center of 
this political moment, which is just the power that memes specifically have in terms of this confluence of propaganda, politics, and the electorate, right? Because memes offer, for the first time, this opportunity that inverts the relationship between the politician and the voter, between the masses and the elite in some way. Like you, as like a keyboard warrior, can create a meme, and if it gets retweeted by the president, all of a sudden you're sitting at the center of a massive political machine as just a, a single person. There's a lot of power in that, and you can see in a strange way how it democratizes politics in a very twisted way, but also how it gets perverted very easily. Like Donald Trump, at least twice, hosted events, one at his Doral Country Club in Florida and one in the White House, where he specifically invited meme artists to the White House to like celebrate <laughs> their work. Uh, so it's like a very overt recognition of this Shepard Ferry moment that's like, oh, great, we can just get these people to make free propaganda for us and then they'll just go out and spread it <laughs> on our behalf. And we don't have to have any political messaging behind it. We don't have to like make these promises to improve people's material standards of living. It's all emotional. And as long as people identify with the emotional relevance of this image, we don't have to do anything else. <laughs> I think that there's a sense in which your film really got me thinking about how the history of Pepe kind of mirrors the history of people's perception of internet culture itself. And it sort of starts out as this funny offbeat and weird kind of distraction. And then it morphs into this kind of excitingly unconfined phenomenon that moves into all these new spaces. And then it turns pretty sharply nasty and scary in a way that you can be critical of, but that you also can't really stop either. You know, we plugged our brains into this machine where everyone can see each other's thoughts. And then what does that mean for how culture works or art works? Do you draw any lessons from all the experts you talk to from this film for artists? I think it continues to be confounding. I think in pretty much every interview we did, someone would either say, you can't put the genie back in the bottle or you can't put the cat back in the bag. For us, the, the conversation kind of became a less artistic one and ultimately one that was based more around the gig economy. As an artist now, the only way for him to really eke out a living as a commercial artist is to kind of think about himself as a brand. And there was this moment in 2015, 2016, 2017, when there were people that would see a Matt Fury artwork, recognize it maybe as the guy who did Pepe and assume that it was done by a neo-Nazi or a white supremacist. And so there's all these different facets of the Pepe and what it means to put your art out into the world. But then there's this also thing where it's, we are all kind of having to like very crassly put ourselves out there as like our own brands. And Pepe as a brand was getting corrupted, maligned, destroyed because of what was going on in 2016. And so while Matt's wanting to reclaim Pepe for copyright is something that was done out of like a real personal need for him to fight back against people like Richard Spencer who were using it as propaganda. But it's also something that he really had to do because, you know, in order for him to like become like a provider for his family and to make a career as an artist, he had to protect what was his. Well, yeah, and it's not just his, it's his personal being, his psyche. Yeah. That's what's so paradoxically infuriating about this is that for one group of people who were used to engaging with Pepe, it was completely free of context for them. Basically, all these people are kind of unknowingly destroying his life and his potential to make money because he wasn't able to 
really define his own narrative. And so that's really in a large sense, what we wanted to do with this film was to canonize Pepe to sort of put a stake in the ground and say like, this is actually the story of Pepe. So that from now on, if you ever see Pepe again on the internet, you can at least understand where it came from, what Matt's story is. And when you see a meme with maybe with him doing something depraved, you understand that that is a derivation, not part and parcel to what Pepe is as the artist intended. From the artistic point of view, I do think, you know, there's something in the film that sort of tracks the history of the way people relate to free culture, that he mm -hmm. seems to have this indie comic ethos where he's like, yeah, I'm not going to shut down someone else for trying to do something cool, you know, at the beginning. And I think that's how most people thought about creativity on the internet around 2012, 2010. And then by the middle of the 2010s, everyone's like, wait a minute, the internet's kind of a doomsday device that yeah. destroys uh, context and any ability to make money off what you do. And, they, and his story really kind of organically tracks that. People are always going to be there to steal shit and the internet just provides open season. <laughs> and it's not really clear what you can do about that. I mean, yeah. you mentioned that putting the genie back in the bottle. Talk about some of his efforts, like the tools he tries to use. Sure. I mean, in the movie, we kind of talk about two distinct periods where Matt was trying to set the record straight or at least make people understand what was going on with his intentions in Pepe. And the first was he did something called the Save Pepe campaign. And this was kind of at the height of Pepe's toxicity. And it was like a hashtag, Save Pepe. And then he encouraged all of his other like fellow illustrators and comic artists to make memes of Pepe that were peaceful and that they were kind of like very self-consciously kind of hippified, kind of these hippie sentiments with peace signs and hearts and stuff. And I think Matt knew that that was something that was going to be viewed as a little naive or easily twisted and co-opted, but it was something that he felt like he could actually do that was positive. At the time, he was feeling like a little isolated and lonely. Well, he can reach out to all of his artistic community and have them help him in some way. That moment kind of passed, and then Matt found, luckily, a law firm that was willing to take the case on pro bono because it had reached this kind of moment of mainstream saturation where you could convince a law firm that was big enough to come in and help him. Before, he didn't have the ability to find a lawyer like that because the case didn't have that level of notoriety. So he found these two great copyright attorneys, Stephanie Lynn and Louis Tompros, who work at this big multinational law firm called Wilmer Hale. And they came in and they were basically able to give Matt the legal firepower to go against people who were specifically using Pepe as propaganda or to profit from their extremist movement. You know, Richard Spencer was using Pepe as the logo for his podcast. He got him to stop doing that. There's an internet provocateur named Bake Alaska, who's a white nationalist who was at Charlottesville. He got him to stop using Pepe. And then in the film, we chart how he gets Alex Jones to remove Pepe from his web store. And so that was a pretty hard process for Matt. I mean, he feels very uncomfortable in those kind of situations. You know, we don't think the movie's preachy or anything, but we do think the movie speaks to this very simple truth as if there's a problem in your life, just deal with it with the tools that you have and get off of the proverbial couch and try to make a stand for the things in your life that you deem to be important and care about. In researching this, I, I found one article about the film that said, Feels Good Man is the new documentary that's making intellectual property lawyers cool. <laughs>
I will say I was emailing with Lewis, one of the lawyers, and he said that the legal side of Pepe the Frog story involves the relationship between copyright and the First Amendment in the era of memes. And this balance between artist rights and copyright has a long history in the Supreme Court. In the 1990s, the Supreme Court decided the Campbell versus Acuff Rose case, famously deciding that two live crews parody of Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman was, quote, transformative and thus fair use and not copyright infringement. And that's like... Well, first of all, anytime we can talk about two live crew, I think is great. But <laughs> it also it portends something potentially wrong or dangerous about how we maybe might in the future classify memes as being transformative or not. There are big questions opened up about culture by the film. I mean, I was going to ask, you don't get too much into it in the film, but when you see Alex Jones's lawyers grilling Matt Fury in the deposition around the lawsuit, you can see where their head's going. They're asking him about all these cartoon characters he's drawn and how similar or dissimilar they look to like Grimace from McDonald's or other popular things. And you can see that they're trying to establish a standard of transformative use. Why is he able to sue some folks over this when it has become kind of a folk image on the internet? Well, he was able to do that specifically with Alex Jones because they could show that it was a tracing from a specific panel. It's actually traced from the page with the sad frog image on it. So you're right. The people that he was able to go after were people that seemed to be using specifically things from the comic book or were specifically referring to the image as Pepe. Just substitute Pepe for Mickey Mouse and imagine what Disney would do <laughs> to Infowars if, if he tried to sell a poster with Mickey Mouse on it. So you mentioned the phrase, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, and how that comes up again and again with this kind of subject matter. There's this person you interview in the movie who, I won't spoil it for people because he's a treat in the movie, but he's kind of, I guess you call him a meme wizard. He both is an expert in internet culture and a literal wizard. He's actually literally a druid. Okay. He, he, yeah. Yes, he is. he's an occultist and a druid. But it yeah. turned to be a pretty effective way to explain some of this confounding subject matter. And he actually says, I think, perhaps the most constructive and interesting thing, which is you can't put the genie back in the bottle, but you can send it somewhere else. And then that kind of takes you to the end of the movie when Pepe arrives in Hong Kong. Talk about that. The guy you're speaking of is an expert in what we call meme magic. And certainly that moment in Hong Kong was truly magic in terms of the pains and pleasures of making a documentary. It's the things you can't account for, it's you can't plan for. And that was an event that happened towards the end, just two weeks before we had to deliver the film to submit to Sundance. And we didn't have an ending yet because our original ending was gonna be this you know, big showdown in the courts between Matt and Alex Jones. And when Alex Jones very suddenly settled, it kind of pulled the rug out from under us. And then one day, we wake up to both of our phones and computers just like filled with messages from friends, notes from Hong Kong and what was happening in Hong Kong with all these freedom protests and that like Pepe was at the center <laughs> of all these things. Yeah. And it just provided to us this really incredible opportunity. To be yeah. clear, Pepe becomes a symbol Yeah. completely at odds with everything he's come to symbolize here. There was this one particular protest that was organizing on social media that were going to try to make a human chain all around Hong Kong. 
and that linking each person's hands were going to be these little homemade origami Pepe hearts. And it was just like, you couldn't write this kind of thing. I mean, it's just so, so special. Yeah, it's amazing that you say that you had a different ending in mind because it is a much more internet era ending where there's kind of like a showdown in the courtroom, such a staple ending. And then it just takes a right turn where the symbol finds a totally other meaning. I don't actually know what to make of that because you go through the film thinking that Matt is on like this Don Quixote quixotic quest to try and unmake a really terrible omelet and thinking, you know, what a dopey is. And then it turns out the internet laughs at all of us. I think we'll hopefully come away from this story years from now, seeing what happened to Pepe during the 2016 election as kind of being a blip in an otherwise kind of incredible story that I think Matt would be the first to tell you too. Like he, he is not looking to quote unquote control Pepe. I think he was just looking to tell his story and, you know, Pepe belongs to the people in some, in some sense. Yeah. And, you know, it also just points out how isolated that 2016 moment of Pepe was. Hong Kong happened because Pepe was such a popular image in places um, like Hong Kong and Taiwan and Malaysia and Singapore without any of the political baggage from the West. It was another symbol for the anonymous. You know, the, the protesters in Hong Kong had to wear masks so that the facial recognition of the Chinese authorities wouldn't be able to like uh, allow them to be recognized in video footage. So once again, Pepe is this faceless symbol for anonymity in the world. I mean, there's a part in it that's very moving in a way where you interview one of the protesters and, and the interviewer asks, um, what does Pepe mean to you? Like, well, Pepe is sad, like Hong Kong, but I believe Pepe will smile someday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's terrific. So just thanks to both of you for Thank talking. you for having us. Yeah, thanks for this awesome. great conversation. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.